You're listening to TIP. Hey everyone, welcome to this Wednesday's release of the Bitcoin Fundamentals Podcast. Today's guest needs little introduction because he's been the Bitcoin Magazine journalist that's been in the center of all the recent exchange bankruptcy reporting, and that's Mr. Dylan LeClaire. For people that aren't familiar with Dylan's work, he's a brilliant writer and on-chain analyst that's often the first to break some of the biggest stories in the space. On today's show, we talk about the recent FTX bankruptcy, Silvergate Bank, GBTC, Genesis, Ethereum, counterparty risk, and much more. So without further delay, here's my chat with Dylan. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investors Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm here with Dylan. Dude, we have so much to talk about. I don't even really know where to start, to be quite honest with you. I have a whole bunch of things written down, but I guess I'm just going to throw it over to you. Like, where do you want to start? Because there's so much going on. Like, what do you think's at the top of, of your radar? Well, I mean, the last two weeks have been crazy. It feels like the crypto crowd gets hit with a black swan, seemingly, you know, quote unquote, black swan every two months here. And, you know, no one could have seen this coming when all of this is just obfuscated leverage and balance sheet impairment. And the things that we've seen with, you know, the casino style of Wall Street for the last three, four, five decades, I mean, way farther than that, right? Like financial history is littered with these lessons and the existence of, of no lender of last resort in this space, you know, 24-7, 365 unregulated securities market, it leads to some interesting results. And, you know, somewhat paradoxically, just implosion of all of this paper Bitcoin is tanking the price. And so, so anybody that actually understands what's, what's unfolding here with the greater macro picture and the existence of this open neutral protocol, digital bearer asset is just laughing to themselves because yes. you know, I'm not in a position to be a forced seller. You're not in a position to be a forced seller. And like, you know, I have all the time in the world. So burn it down, you know, like <laughs> I have no problem. Amen. Market leverage getting liquidated. And you know, like especially with this with this macro cycle, the Fed's in a position where they're not going to be able to keep this thing duct taped together at five percent, four percent rates when this monetary policy with a lag effect kicks in. That's I mean, that's a different discussion. But you know, Bitcoin, here we are, eighty percent from down from the highs, hash rate at all time high, all these on chain metrics that we've been sharing back and forth with each other for the last year, eight years. Months. Yeah. As crazy as I've ever seen them. I will say one, maybe not flaw, but I overestimated in my analysis in, in 2021 was look at the supply. This thing is so inelastic. You know, there's no, there's no real sellers without really realizing, or maybe I overestimated the fact that 20% of that supply, if there's just more marginal sellers and buyers, obviously can tank the price. And so as we've seen, you know, the macro cycle turn and the long bonds start to sell off. And then all of these implosions and fraud in crypto land. Bitcoin just has this liquidity gauge, both for legacy markets and, you know, beta and the crypto casino has, has gotten pummeled. So I kind of threw a lot at you there, but I mean, this is nothing but a thing and, and it's going to be a hell of a next 18 months, 24 months after this. Man, I just want to bottle up what you said and just pump it into my veins because you're exactly right. Like Caitlin Long has been jumping up and down about this for at least a year, more than a year, more than a year. On the way up, she was kicking and screaming. She's just saying like, there are companies out here creating paper Bitcoins and they are totally manipulating the price action. 
when she was saying it, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's happening, but how much, you know, I really wasn't quite sure. But now it is becoming so abundantly obvious that what we're watching is just, just a straight bank run for real Bitcoin. Everybody is saying, show me a real Bitcoin. And like FTX, they had a negative balance on their balance sheet. I mean, Dylan, I'm just thinking about all these people that are watching a commercial with Tom Brady or Steph Curry or any of these people, they're downloading the app, they're smashing by Bitcoin, right? And they're looking at their FTX app and they're thinking, I mean, how, if you took all the people that had that app, that had bought Bitcoin, that thought they had it in their account, only to find out that FTX had a negative balance of Bitcoin on their books. It's insane. It's yep. insane. Yeah. And, and, and really more so, Preston, I think the, the paper Bitcoin thing, 100%, but also this Bitcoin exchange rate is taking a hit because you had Alameda and FTX run a Ponzi and pump, you know, what was the total Solana ecosystem market cap? at the top of the 2021 cycle, yes. like $250 billion of a liquid, like some of these Solana coins present, $40 billion market cap, fully diluted market cap yeah. with you know, $1 billion current free float market cap, right? And so like this whole, and, that, and Alameda and FTX stuffed that on their balance sheet and you know, pumped it into everything else, right? You had the L1 trade. It was just a illiquid levered beta, like for, for, you yeah. know, for, for lack of a better term. And it's all unwinding. And the crazy thing was, I knew that there was, and I was an advocate, not an advocate, but it's an interesting exploration into, you know, over collateralized Bitcoin borrowing and, and the reality that a 365, 365 day, 24 seven market, an over collateralized Bitcoin. And if it gets less volatile, you don't have to collateralize it as much. That's a really interesting form of collateral for a lender of last resort, for a lender rather, I'm sorry. But these guys were levering against GBTC, against you know, AVAX against Luna, the amount of risk taking on, on, and it's all the same trade, right? To the downside, it's all the same trade and there's no natural buyers of these things. And so FTT imploding and FTX not selling you the 70,000 Bitcoin paradoxically tanks the price because their casino implodes. But what's happening as a response because of the general like lack of trust left in the system, which is great. I mean, this is a shock that, you know, the silver lining is that this is what we needed this is what Bitcoin needed rather to kind of separate itself from like this, you know, fraudulent pump and dump unregistered security space that is crypto. Let's be real here. Right. Like I had, uh, I'm seeing arguments about, you know, Ethereum and how it enables all of this financial innovation and it's none of its innovation. It's just all, it's all the traditional systems it really on a protocol yeah. Oh, with governance tokens that somehow have a market cap because you're feeding some of the protocol revenue back into the thing. And it's like perpetual motion machine, financial leverage that's obfuscated. It's none of its innovation. It's, and it's all, and you know, these token values, like give me a break, right? Like, why are we here? Why are we talking about this magic internet money in the first place? It's like not pressing. We're not interested in a casino. Like, I mean, casinos are fun, you know, go burn a thousand bucks. Sure. Right. But like why do you spend every single day talking about this space? It's because we think it can solve the biggest problem in the world, which is a, you know, like, like you like to say mutilated cost of capital. Yep. <laughs> right. Like if the cost of capital is broken, everything's broken. Like as investors, you started your podcast talking about Warren Buffett style investing. Why are you talking about magic internet money? Yeah. And it's because the cost of capital is just destroyed. It's, it's centrally planned it's, and it's garbage and it's leading to a centrally planned economies at scale and it's going to collapse. 
this whole thing, like they're the fiat system at 120% federal debt to GDP. And so, you know, the financial, unregistered financial securities and, you know, governance tokens and all like NFTs for God's sakes, that's cool and fun and cute. You know, you can have your cool profile picture. But like, I'm really fascinated in the possibility or probability that we can fix global money or actually not fix it. But there's only really one thing in the world that's, that's purpose built to be, you know, money for enemies, global neutral money, for, you know, a settlement network for enemies and Ethereum and Solana and all of this stuff that happened in the bull market. I mean, I study it because it has an effect on the Bitcoin exchange rate. And it's why I've you know, been able to point out a lot of these Ponzi's <laughs> for better or yeah, worse. They are Ponzi's. Like, yeah. But why, why would I be interested in, in buying that? Like, I mean, I, I, Preston, I mean, I've shorted a good amount of these things on the way down this cycle, which I morally like not feel great about, but I have no problem with doing like, maybe I shouldn't be giving liquidity to these things at all, but like I'm not buying it. I'm just covering lower because these things are worthless. Mm-hmm. It's just frustrating for me to see people who have a major influence on, on Twitter, for example, Jason Chatmuth, Mark Cuban, all these people right? They have a, a massive megaphone to do the right thing, to highlight how broke the existing system is. And you're literally watching videos of them at the top joking about how they're rug pulling on Solana and all of these activities, all these, all these VCs out in Silicon Valley. And you know what? You had Jack Dorsey was the only guy I could see that was yep. actually shouting from the mountaintops that they were the problem, that everything that they were doing to pump these scams, where was the SEC? Where was anybody? And I'm not one of these people that are saying that we have to be saved by the SEC. I'm just saying it's so blatantly obvious that what they're doing is a scam that, and it was like, nobody did anything. It's everybody just standing there laughing about it. In fact, it was almost like sport. It was almost that these people were being celebrated for being able to scam so many people. And you know what? It makes me sick to my stomach. I am nothing like that. You're nothing like that. I refuse to participate in such ridiculousness, right? The pictures of the monkeys, like just idiots. People, like, I, just could, I cannot, it was so obvious that we were hitting a high watching all of these things. And now it's, it's, it's like, I can't, like this thing cannot be torched hard enough. Like people think I'm joking when I'm online and I'm like, burn this thing to the ground, like just torch it. And if, if the Bitcoin price, you know, gets punished in the meantime, well, so be it. I truly don't care. I like, like you, I'm sitting on, on my coins. I hold my keys. I have nothing to worry about. Absolutely nothing. Torch it. Like, like they can't torch this thing hard enough as far as I'm concerned, because it's a total cesspool. Yeah. And there's still a lot further to go in that sense, in terms of yeah. the, whether it's like, you know, the mark to market leverage that's hidden, right. Or, or these exchanges that definitely took an impairment, like some of these exchanges had their customer balances on FTX for what reason, I don't know. Right. Yeah. But like obviously doing something wrong, like eventually there's going to be more exchange and because no one's going to say they have impairment. They're all going to try to survive through and they're going to collapse. Right. Obviously, because if you announce you are, you're going to bank run immediately. So they just try to stave it off and have to PR and up their chest out like SBF and Alameda did. Right. Like also just Alameda was, was just like, let, let's be clear here. They were a, a Ponzi since 2019. Right. 
when you look at when you look at what they were doing, giving Bernie Madoff style returns, and when did the money stop? You see, Suzu literally tweeted this in 2019. I, we stumbled mm-hmm. upon the tweets after. They tweeted, "Oh, the guys that run out of money, can, you know, offering 20% fixed rate loans to run their Ponzi. What do they do next? Spin up a Bitmex competitor and launch FTT token, right?" And the white paper literally is like is like proposing the Ponzi app. It's like unbelievable. So yeah, wash it all out, right? Like the Bitcoin only companies. You know, it's obviously tougher when the Bitcoin price is 80% from the highs. And Bitcoin certainly wouldn't have gotten as high as it did without, you know, it had native speculation as well. Like, like, let's be clear, you know, but all of that open interest, all of that Bitcoin collateralized 20, 40, 50% annualized to pay leverage, the whole DeFi ecosystem or stable coins, you could farm stable at 20% APR. Like none of that was innovation. People mistook DeFi as like this thing that, you know, cryptography and like the public blockchain enabled you to get more APR on your, on your savings or something. It was I mean, like, no, these are, if, if I was going to say the only thing that has come out of, of all of this cesspool is just immediately clearing dollars or immediately yeah. clearing euros, like that's value to be able to, because let's face it, most of the world's debts are denominated in fiat, large fiat currencies. If you yep. can immediately clear those in one of these, you know, third world countries or whatever, and, and immediately send it to somebody and they can take custody of that token. And it actually represents, and this is the big if, if the people managing these, these stable coins actually have the backing that they say they've got, then maybe there's some innovation there to help bridge the transition to this new world where we actually have a free and open cost of capital because we have a unit of account that can't be manipulated. That's the only thing I'll give them. That's it. Yep. I don't know what else there is that's come out of it that actually potentially provides any sort of value whatsoever uh, other than a stable coin. Yeah, um, no, I agree. And it's just like, it's just, you know, bank reserves on a, on a blockchain. Like it's a, it's a privileged blockchain. It's not this, it's not this open immutable thing, right? Yeah, like exactly. It's centralized, it's a centralized ledger that assists an immediate immediate clearance. That's the innovation. You don't have to wait for ACH. So so let's go to really kind (laughs) of, by the time this airs, who knows what the heck's going to have happened here. Genesis, Digital Currency Group, DCG. This seems to be like the really big next domino potentially to fall after FTX. Also, Silvergate, you have been really kind of uh, ringing the bell on Silvergate and just looking at their stock price and it's just plummeting and they have a major dollar clearing network between exchanges. Talk to us a little bit about some, both of those two ideas and kind of where you see them stacking up in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. I mean, so Genesis, similar to FTX, it might have, it might have been dead in the water already, you know, seemingly, or their, their loan book took some impairment. I mean, they literally swapped, Genesis did. They swapped a billion and a half of Bitcoin for UST to give the Luna Foundation Guard their Bitcoin reserves, right? So, so who knows what they had? This uh, is back. Know, 5. How long yeah. ago was that? This was a while ago. This was June or, you know, before yeah. the Luna Ponzi, uh, in May, June or something. I forget, it all blends together now. But they swapped a billion and a half of Bitcoin for the UST. And presumably, I mean, maybe they dumped it out, but like, there was a rush of exits in the UST, if you remember, and who knows how much of an impairment loss they took there, right? They had 170 million on FTX and, you know, maybe some link with BlockFi and, and, and just people should understand when they say, you know, it's like duration mismatch, mismatching or, you know, liquidity concerns or blah, 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 blah. 
if they have to halt withdrawals in this market without a lender of last resort, they're marked to market insolvent. Mm-hmm. Like, like, yeah. I mean, this is a traditional banking system thing, right? Where they have a, a lender of last resort and where they have regulations and whatever. So like these things supposedly shouldn't happen. But we have wildcat banking. There is no lender of last resort. So DCG, if you have to stop, Genesis, if you have to stop withdrawals and you're, 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 you're no longer extending credit, you're marked to market insolvent. Right. And there's impairment loss everywhere in the space. That's why immediately, I think it was a day or two after Luna UST imploded, put out a thread. And I didn't think it was a thread immediately. Half the time I post threads, I just post a thought and then I link another thought and I link another thought. But it's like, get the hell out of yield products. What are you yeah. guys thinking? And this whole thing was inflated from nothing, right? It was a, a financial perpetual motion machine. But there was, you know, $60 billion or however many billion dollars of Luna and then $20, $18 billion of UST, right? And then the mechanism of like, you, you commit to UST, you burn Luna. So Luna supply shrinks and it increases the, the market cap and the price. And it's like, and on the way down, you had $18 billion, poof, gone, right? And there was basically three kind of drivers well, to, the, to the yield thing. Dylan, this is really important. The $18 billion was, was like never there. It was all capitalized, <laughs> right? It's all capitalized, yeah, which yeah. means it can contract just as fast. But what happens is yes. they go out after they've capitalized this and, cre- and materialize it out of nowhere, they then go and fractionalize, lever it, right? By borrowing and, and saying that this is, people are treating it as if it's actually there when it's not, it's been capitalized. And, and so that's the thing that I think is totally lost in these games that are being played is they are fractional reserve games from the old system. And people are coming over into this new system. And this is what Caitlin keeps beating the drum about. They're playing these these fractional reserve games from the old system, fully not recognizing that they are now playing in a space that is equity-based. And the two are, they, it's like mixing oil and water. They do not go together. And for people in the future that think that they can step in and play these games really cute, like, like Sam. He, he would have told you he's the smartest guy in the room, right? And he steps in and he's so brilliant. He was doing all these strategies from before, but you know what? He was a total moron. He had no clue what he was stepping into. He didn't even understand the basis of what this is all about, right? And he got absolutely annihilated. Like okay. annihilated. Looked like a total idiot. I'm sorry, keep going. I, I'm... It's just important because people don't understand how it gets capitalized. They don't understand the multiple and then how, how those receipts are then gone out and traded against. It's just, it's crazy. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. 
They are one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Corient put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Corient.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. That's Corient.com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network in the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. Yeah, I mean, it's literally like just leveraged the entire thing up and, and people mistook this as innovation. Yeah. Like, this like they probably have had for like currencies and currency pegs. Like this is an age old economic thing, like the, the currency trilemma and managing this, you know, the capital flow, setting a fixed interest rate, setting a fixed exchange rate. And Luna and UST basically backed the stablecoin with volatile collateral. And then as this Luna, basically a liquid token, increased in value, people would exchange that to go farm UST and decrease the circulating supply, increase the price. You had $20 billion earning 20% yield from what? Subsidized from their ICO. They realized it was a shell game and said, what? We're going to go buy 80,000 Bitcoin, 100,000 Bitcoin. We're going to be the biggest Bitcoin holder in the world. And it was interesting, Preston, because... Before I really understood the mechanisms, the mechanics of the, of the Luna Ponzi in particular, do you remember like stocks and bonds were melting down and, you know, post Ukraine invasion mm-hmm. and Bitcoin was hitting bid really hard. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, and you know, hindsight's 2020, but as Bitcoin went from like 32K to 30 to 46 or whatever it was, it was like the kind of the, basically the crypto market cap Luna, like Ponzi. And that was kind of like this last gasp of juice, this last gasp of inflows. And since then, right, Bitcoin is really the only thing in this entire space that has actual passive inflows and hodlers of, of last, last, last resort, mm-hmm. right? The rest of it, you know, like maybe, yeah, maybe say ETH, but they don't even know what they're buying is the fundamental thing here. There's yeah. a reason that, that Bitcoiners have seen this thing over and over again go down 85%. And so, yeah, I, I don't even know what the original point here, but I agree. Burnt down, the fractional reserve gains, the yield farms, like, you know, how will you get it? Where is the yield coming from? Like the shout out to Alex Farrington. Where is the yield on your 6% Bitcoin, on your 8% stablecoin that Gemini Earn was offering last week, right? Like, where is it coming from? And no one asked the question. And maybe it's a predatory model because the exchanges are saying this is yield, right? And well, isn't, you know, they isn't, some disclosures. isn't that Genesis's main thing? Is they're the ones yeah. out there creating the yeah. yield? And now they, you know, if you were if you were using their product via Gemini or wherever, you can't yeah. withdraw your funds right now. Yet Barry is going out there, you know, making these claims that he's going to come back stronger. Meanwhile, nobody can even withdraw their funds. Like, talk to us a little bit about some of that. Yeah, so I mean, it was a pretty wild day today. I was recording a safe actually, and you know, news is dropping at the time about you know Genesis is is you know insolvent or declaring for bankruptcy, and then they're like, no, we're not. And then Barry's like, you know, everyone's like. Barry's, he's in trouble. By the way, like 
can we just acknowledge that, you know, Barry Silbert has been in the space for a while. I mean, he surely knows what he's doing somehow. You can't just stumble into being that successful and big and large. And, you know, GBDC was a good product for a while. It's since turned into a total nightmare due to market forces. But regardless, like, I mean, the guy was punting into Zcash and, and coins at the absolute top. Like, yeah, there's some, some lending bets that went bad here, but like you're buying 10 figures of, of a, a liquid altcoins via venture deals or, you know, OTC or whatever the heck you're doing. Maybe you're just bidding on exchanges. And now we're kind of questioning like, oh, we got wrecked. Well, yeah, like I think a lot of these guys got high on their own supply, the cycle, uh, things that other like that, that weren't built on any strong foundation. Like that's why Three Arrows blew up. Smartest guys in the room, right? Three Arrows Capital. They punting into all these liquid levered beta altcoins, thinking that there's some innovation here. Like the reflexivity of these cycles have people think that there's something genuine, and it's all just <laughs> lies essentially on the way down when tide goes out, and they're all swimming naked. And so, I mean, I don't even remember the original point. Well, this, I, I don't agree with you. I'm, I'm random. It almost seems like their access to the to the printing press. Like these guys, a lot of these guys that you just named, their access to the printing press was very accessible. And it almost sets them up for the failure because they start going out and getting too fancy because they've got so much money to move that they're getting so fancy with it that it just opens them up to a major fall. The tide goes out like we're seeing right now. I mean, and this tide's going out hard and it doesn't seem like it's going to let up anytime soon. So like, now, if they're trying to raise, whether it's $500 million or, or a billion or whatever it is, this is kind of a tough environment to go out and, and raise half a, half a billion or a billion in the face of everything that's happening in this space. I, I just don't know that they're going to be able to, get, to go out and get it. Now, I know in the note today, he said that he has raised $25 million, which, <laughs> which is a start. But what are your thoughts on GBTC? Because that also falls under this DCG, the Digital Currency Group. What are, what's your yeah. thoughts on GBTC? I don't own it. I may or may not buy it for a trade, but like, I mean, I guess maybe it'd be at that attractive level. People have been buying that dip for the whole year since basically February of 2020, looking to close that ARB and the ARB keeps ARBing them to the downside. I mean, it's a terrible, pro- not terrible product, but 2%, 2%, you know, leech on your Bitcoin holdings every year. It's not on Bitcoin rails. It's not self-sovereign. It's not immutable. We know those things. I guess you're in a Roth or something else. You know, there is some upside at that 50% you know, discount to NAV. Like that's a, that's a pretty juicy trade if it ever comes even halfway close. But I think convertibility is a long, long way away, especially after all the fraud that has happened in this ecosystem. The SEC or whatever, you know, three-letter agencies are going to clamp down real hard and they're going to probably, you know, they're going to, they're not going to want to unleash this, this flood that is a Bitcoin spot settled ETF, right? Mm-hmm. With, I imagine some form of transparent wallet address, which is weird because Grayscale was like, Hey guys, like we have this, you know, revolutionary technology that's the future of, you know, finance and, and we're putting out Bitcoin versus gold commercials on CNBC for the last three years. Oh, but the trivial thing, the thing I, I can do on my MacBook that I'm recording this Zoom call on, Preston, with software that I downloaded in three hours where I can sign a message with my keys and we can't do that because of security purposes. When a competing ETF that's much smaller, admittedly, they only had one address, admittedly posted their address in a day. They posted yesterday. They said, hey, we're with Coinbase Custody. Here's our address. We're a big, Austria Bitcoin trust. Right? Small trust, okay, but show us the keys. And never mind that, the real question for me with, with Genesis and DCG was, by the looks of it, it seems like you're, there's some form of liability relationship. And they came out and were like, 
we have no official, you know, there's no liabilities with, with Genesis Global or Genesis Capital or whatever it was. And it's like, okay, but how easy is it to create another entity and, and you know, or some special purpose vehicle and do that? I mean, look at the Alameda FTX org chart. So yeah. you're telling me like, so what's that liability and how big's the hole? And I think the worst case scenario for GBDC is that the trust is, is liquidated. I think there's an extremely small chance, but you know, 600,000 coin would certainly be quite the, quite the sell. And I imagine it'd be gobbled up via OGC. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, so I, I don't know how to like quantify these things, but honestly, how I've been kind of on the pulse on some of these things in the, in the last six to nine months is just ask questions. But like, mm-hmm. I have no answers here. I don't know who has a counterparty with the other, with another like firm, but I'm going to ask, or I'm you know, going to kind of think out these scenarios. And oftentimes like some of these questions have found decent answers. And so like, I think just, just preparing for these scenarios, I mean, for the average person, just stack stats, right? Like, but as someone that's kind of in the weeds of this whole thing, it's certainly been fun to kind of dig through it and piece together the, the puzzle pieces. If it got sold, let's say that it did get sold because they had to raise funds and they, they weren't able to do it by borrowing. So they have to sell their cash cow because this thing's a cash cow. This thing makes a lot of money for them. If they fumble um, that bag, that'd be devastating. Yeah. But yeah. Yes. So, but if they would sell it, let's say they sell it to a Fidelity or they sell it to one of these other big banks. This turns into a major, I guess my question is, is, do you see it returning back to NAV if the sale goes through to another bank that then can maybe start buying shares back to try to push it back towards its NAV? It seems like they don't have any money to do it anymore. They were trying to do it. They ran out of money to do it. They've got themselves in a bunch of trouble with some other stuff in their, in their parent company. And so they're not able to try to try to force the price back up to the nab because they don't have the they don't have the money to do it. But if you get it to an, another bank that then owns the product, is that how it gets back up to nav, or do you think that there's there's more to this than than that simple deduction? That would be an interesting bidding war. How much would would you know some of these financial institutions pay for? For the GBTC product, essentially, just wrapped on you know their their institution, and I built like you know a lot of money. This thing's spinning off thirty Bitcoin a day, right now. Six hundred thirty-five thousand Bitcoin, two percent a year. You know, divided by three hundred sixty-five, it's like thirty Bitcoin a day. I think uh, I did that I just, a few days back. Dylan, I don't understand why nobody else has built another trust. Why is why is Barry the only one that has this product? <laughs> yeah, I think is they they've been around for a while. They got the first step, and then. There was kind of this, you know, network effect, I guess, right? Everyone was sleeping on it really until 2020. And that's when it went berserk. And, and part of the reason I think Bitcoin had such an aggressive upcycle and then kind of faltered was the, you know, Three Arrows Capital, GBTCR, where they were going to Genesis, pledging Bitcoin, getting GBTC shares back, pledging those shares to borrow more money to do the trade over again. And then they got caught when that, you know, premium got arbed so hard with the six-month lockup that it went to a discount. And 3AC eventually blew up. Genesis eventually blew up. And, you know, DCG was borrowing hundreds of millions of dollars to close this ARB and then they got bulldozed. So, I mean, I, I, it's like no worry to me. I think there's an extremely small, like infinitesimally small chance that, you know, Barrier or Grayscale is doing some, some form of like, like fraud where, the, they, you know, a lot of the Bitcoin's gone. Right? I think everything after this past two weeks, everything is a, is a non-zero chance of happening. Like people should just... Just yes. think, what if it does? Yes. But I think, I, do I think these guys are running a buck shop? No. Like, I think potentially the worst case scenario is, is you know, Barry's lever to the hill, right? They had a $500, 600000000 million credit line they got in November of last year. 
Since then, they bought back a whole bunch of GBTC shares. They punted and they announced that they bought the Mir, which is another one of these L1 altcoins. They, I mean, they, how, much, how many millions did they put into that, right? At like local tops and they're down 80% since. So I have no idea what their balance sheet is, but it's probably not, not pretty, right? And if they're forced to sell this thing, that means they're in deep trouble, which is quite the fumble, but I digress. Silvergate. <laughs> yeah. So this was one of the things where after the, the definitive implosion of FTX, once it was clear to me that FTT was imploding, the real question was, who are the counterparties? Is it, was it Genesis? Is it a, the Nightegg or a BlockFi? And I couldn't answer the question, who was willing to accept FTT collateral with, with no natural buyer? And the more that I thought about that question, and we, we talked, I think, on Wednesday, the Wednesday before the mm-hmm. Monday FTX collapse, yeah, I think. Yeah. And I mean, I, we were both pretty confident. You, I think you shortly after, shortly before, tweeted out comparing Sam S- SBF to the Enron CEO. But like, it was pretty obvious, I think, once you pieced it together, that the only people or, or, or you know, firm that was willing to take FTT as collateral, because they were obviously levered, as their balance sheet said, and then after they implicitly, Caroline admitted it in the most hilarious tweet of all time. Insane. The dumbest tweet of all time. The dumbest you know, tweet of all time. So true. Just showed their cards. Showed their cards to the entire table. So dumb. So dumb. The classic speculative attack. And it was, okay, once, once 22 broke and you saw, you know, $100 million of open interest on FTX just evaporate. That to me, we wrote to, we, we published actually right as the FTT broke 22, we clicked send on our Bitcoin Magazine Pro issue to like 15,000 people. We're like, this thing's imploding. Get your coins off of, of FTX beyond a reasonable doubt. And, you know, we, do we know they're insolvent or not? No, we can't say this, but like, not looking great. And, you know, they halted withdrawals within 12 hours. And it was pretty shocking. Can't say it was unexpected, but just in terms of the amount of trust that a figure like SBF had as the smartest guy in the room as the savior and the JP Morgan of crypto was, was, you know, if it wasn't so sad, it'd be laughable. It almost is laughable in a way. And, you know, it's what, one of the largest financial frauds of all time in absolute terms, right? Like, I mean, definitely in absolute terms. What a mess. Absolute disaster. Yeah. I mean, I just, I, I don't understand the mindset and I guess it's maybe people are just so new to the space that they, they don't even know what Mt. Gox was or you know, maybe their cousin told them to buy it and they're just, they think it's like a bank where, yeah. you know, they've got a deposit. Of course, it's still going to be there tomorrow. And like, <laughs> this space is nothing like that. I didn't answer your question. It was the, the Silvergate. On Silvergate, thing. yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. Hit um, the Silvergate piece. Well, okay. So I, I don't really have any answers, but once I, I really realized there's two main banks in this space, Silvergate and Signature. And I go on Silvergate's website and on not the homepage, I think it was one of the side pages, or maybe it was the homepage. It was literally, you, I can't make this stuff up. A quote from SBF saying, Silvergate has really revolutionized the blockchain industry and banking for blockchain companies. And it was like, okay. And then the following days, I see, see people saying, how could we not see the signs? When I wired money, this is what it showed me when I wired money to FTX.com. And it was Alameda Research, Silvergate Bank. That and is so, insane. Like you it's would literally, they, and they said, they said like Sam Trabuco, you know, the former CEO who retired to go sailing you know, two months before this whole thing imploded, you know, like he's like, no, don't worry guys. Like I just like, like my boat, you know, like rats jump in the ship. 
two months before this whole thing imploded, they're like, well, or I guess at the start of 2022, I think it was a Coindesk interview or something. They're like, what's the, what's the relationship between you guys and FTX? I'll meet an FTX. He's like, there's an ironclad wall between us. And in the meantime, you have people that are wiring money to FTX thinking to an Alameda research bank account. And just to think of, you know, for Silvergate's terms, like they're already being investigated for money, money laundering, I think South America or South mm-hmm, Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like we're talking about securities here, not, I'm not a banking analyst, not financial advice, but the, the, something's ugly, right? There's, and there's, there's going to be a clampdown. And as a, as a bank, like the main thing you have to look out for is deposits. Mm-hmm. You need deposits to be able to lend out, right? And so you see Falcon X is an institutional player. They said, we're not working with them. And the, the SEND network here, the SDN network, you know, Circle, Coinbase, Paxos, Gemini, like all, all of these firms, then half of them that, that have their tentacles in this thing are settling dollar balances on, on Silvergate's network. And so when I see Silvergate's equity, you know, it's fallen, fell 50% a month before FTX and it's fallen another 50% or something or 30, 40%, whatever it is. And so I, I don't know what's, what can happen with that. But all I have to ask is like, how would, would that be a net benefit or, or not for liquidity in this space that's already running up? This is the thing I, I just can't wrap my head around. So like when you establish a business, you know, it, it has its own EIN number. It's like a social security number for the business. So FTX would have had their own business number and same with Alameda, they would have had their own business. So then when you open a cash checking account with a bank, you have to, just like an individual where you give them your social security number to open the bank, you provide the EIN number for the business to open a cash account. So FTX would have done that. Alameda would have done that. And Silvergate is literally taking cash deposits and sending them to a different business entity than the one that's associated with the deposit. It doesn't make any sense. It's, it's yeah. ludicrous. Like, I just don't and even know I, how that's possible to do that on these rails. It's not great. And I'm not, I'm not one, like you said earlier, to you know, call for the heavy hand of the state. Actually, far from it. You know, for all I'm concerned, you know, let, let, let it be the wild, wild west and people just you know, suffer, yeah. suffer the consequences for your own incompetence. I'm perfectly that fine harsh. with that. Yeah. Well, but, yeah. you know, I, I understand that we, we live in the system we do today and, and probably all of this leads to, to further regulation and whatnot. So, I mean, I think that, you know, the legacy system, never mind the stable coins, never mind what, whatever the heck they're building over on that monstrosity that is Ethereum. I think it's all going to be top down, OFAC compliant, you know, CBDC type of control. The government doesn't give this stuff up, and actually, they they only steadily encroach upon upon you more. So, like this whole you know stable coins are interesting, or like you know, never mind this the send network and and what that would mean. Just like the trend is so obviously sent like censorship, control, surveillance, and when I think of any other option besides something that cannot be controlled, it can be surveilled. Obviously, the the transparency Bitcoin is a feature, and and to some, it's a bug. But the reality is like nothing else. There's no other rail that you'll be able to, to clear on other than this, this orange coin. <laughs> and there's, there's nothing else. So Dylan, when you say you think everything's going to an OFAC compliant, clearly you don't think that about Bitcoin, but you do think it about every, everything else. Is, is that correct? Well, yeah. I mean, if you break it down in the most simple sense, people, the people that, that say security budget, I, I, I just roll my eyes because 
because right now the security budget is subsidized by the issuance of coins, right? And that every having that declines and it goes from you're paying, everybody's paying for the security budget, dilution of your, of your, not your stake, but a dilution of your share of the circulating supply, yeah. right? So as more coins, 900 Bitcoin a day got, you know, got mined today, right? So, so our stake in, in absolute terms, in terminal terms, our percent of the Bitcoin ownership hasn't declined at all. But in, in you know, current terms, it has, and that's paying for minor security. But in the future where the block, like this is the key point here, in the future where the block subsidy is zero and the block reward is only fees, where mining is brutally competitive and difficulty is ratcheted up so high and ASICs are so efficient that you need free energy to compete with this thing at all. You need free energy essentially. Yeah, yeah. That future, you paying with your private keys and your Bitcoin, you are paying for your security budget with fees. And there's will be OFAC compliant pools. And there will be, you know, whether it's like the United States and then the Russia and all these others, but you individually are paying for a profit in minor that is nothing but economic incentives at play to include your, your transaction in the block. And maybe there is an, you know, a compliant pool or two, but the reality is this black market, you know, guerrilla mining landscape, that's just pure modern warfare and capitalism in the most pure form. There will be someone that mines your block regardless of if it's OFAC compliant or not. That's right. Because it's purely a profit game. It's That's right. only about economic, economic incentives. And if you're getting censored on a, on a transaction, theoretically, which this hasn't happened, right? Everyone kind of booed Marathon for even proposing the idea. We don't even have to rely on Marathon. That's the thing. Just pay up your transaction fee. Just raise your, <laughs> your tax right. per bite. Like, this is the most basic thing. There is no security budget. You are the security budget. Mm-hmm. But your coins, your, your payment, whether it's dilution, because a block subsidy being issued and everybody's subsidizing this, or it's a purely transactional fee basis where yeah. you're paying to not get censored. And all of the stuff that's happening on Ethereum with proof of stake and minor extractable value. And, and I, I mean, I spent 110 hours to be wrote an extensive report about this. I mean, I understood Ethereum before and, and the basics of it, but I spent hours upon hours, days upon days putting together this thing on Ethereum and reading about the history of minor extractable value and proof of stake and all the proposals and all the top-down initiated hard forks and difficulty bombs and what a mess. And, and to think now that, you know, 50% plus of these blocks are OFAC compliant and two weeks before the merge, you have Ethereum developer calls say, well, guys, you know, if we do release, if we release this thing, it's going to be OFAC compliant from the start. And the response is like, okay, well, we'll code up a solution. We'll code up an, a different, you know, block builder, or, or we'll, you know, we can we can slash your stake. We can we can slash your stake if they're censoring guys, but we still need to code that part of it. We need to code the, the ability to unstake. And and as like, I'm not an engineer, but I I think I understand engineering from a from a basic level, and I've listened to a lot of smart engineers talk, whether it's about computer science or just basic systems. And if all of these things are so trivial. Why didn't you release it from the start? Why not wait until your network was bulletproof and, and ready for, for anything to, to go forward with this? And when I look at Ethereum as an investable asset, as a protocol, like as a supposedly neutral protocol, I just think it's obfuscation. And, and, and fundamentally, people, a lot of these people have no idea what they're investing in. You, yep. you know, you're, inven- you're, you're investing in, it's a venture bet. It's a, and that's what it is. I mean, and they can be a high upside venture, but sure. I mean, there is, there is a reality where Ethereum is as a, you know, sensor network can be worth a, a trillion dollars. Sure. I'll, maybe I'll give you that. But 
I mean, the purpose now, let's be clear, is building casinos, building, you know, speculative trading valueless token casinos or JPEGs or ICOs or dApps or whatever the world computer narrative changes to next. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of The Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3500. 539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. 
All right, back to the show. I think it's, I think it's so obvious that if you took the whole ecosystem, like every one of these, these altcoins, the Bitcoiners, you took all of them and you lined them up, a majority of people are not here for anything other than trying to make a, a bunch of money real fast. And they're greedy and they're not here for any other reason. And, you know, I like to think that the people that are just here for Bitcoin are here for what you had originally opened this conversation with, which is if we can fix the money, we can actually create a free and open market and a free and open cost of capital. And we can actually get efficient productivity happening in the world where we get real prices and not manipulated prices. That's why Bitcoiners are in the space. All this other stuff, like when you're getting into the OFAC compliance of Ethereum, I don't think people in Ethereum give a crap about no. what we just described there with you know fixing the cost of capital in the world and what that brings to humanity. They're there because they want to make a bunch of money and, they, and, and they'll wrap it around this idea that they're, that they're innovating with tech. But when you look at what the innovation is, like there's no equity behind any of these tokens. There's no productivity. There's no product behind any of this stuff. They're just casino tokens and they're just trying to get rich and dump their bags on somebody who's dumber than them at a, at a moment in time that, that, you know, Silicon Valley VCs pump their bags and they're, they're just trying to get in harmony with that pump. Like it is sick. It is, it's a disaster. And the validation process on ETH, it's a train wreck. Like, yeah. and, and the argument I saw online from a person, they were like, like, well, if people are doing nefarious things, don't you want the government? Don't you want them to be OFAC compliant? And I'm thinking, that's the system you have right now, right? That, yeah. that somebody can come in and censor you. Like, what happens when you're on the wrong side of the censorship? Just like we're seeing with free speech on, on some of these platforms. Like, how do people not understand that it's only a matter of time until they're on the wrong side of the censorship? It's so <laughs> simple. It's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, I, I summarize this and I, I talk with a Twitter interaction with David Hoffman, who is basically, he, you know, the bankless guys. So he posted a tweet earlier and said, basically, you know, the last two cycles, we're, we're just better, better Ponzi's on top of each other, referring to 2017, 2021 or whatever. And how like the whole thing is just Ponzi's. And I was like, no, the whole thing isn't Ponzi's. The thing that you're promoting as like this innovative thing is purely based on a Ponzi on, cre on creating Ponzi's, right? Yeah. So, so Ethereum isn't a Ponzi. It's an asset. The funny thing is also, you know, the Ethereum foundation, the guys that spun up this, this spun up this token, this ICO, right? Free mine. They said, Originally on the website, I, I can't find it. I tried to find it recently with the Internet Archive, but I've seen it on the Internet Archive before. Like this was like two years ago. Ethereum is not competing to be a money like Bitcoin. Ethereum is purely a gas-based asset to be used for compute, right? Yeah. And that's and, the that's the sales pitch. Yeah. And then six years later, Ethereum via top-down centralized fork, and it wasn't you know the community said you know community this decentralized gover governance architecture said it was fine, right? I mean, the miners had said it's fine. Let's be clear. The miners said no. The Ethereum Foundation for all these changes said yes. Yeah. And, and, and all of a sudden, Ethereum via EIP 155, uh, 1559, 
they might just say no to this, but all of a sudden Ethereum is ultrasound money, right? Ethereum is deflationary. It's such a good money. It's deflationary. It's just, it was just interesting to cycle what the, the animal spirits that brought out in terms of, of people thinking that there was, there was some genuine innovation here and not stripping it back to, like, I, I keep coming back to the simple point. There's only really one thing here in this entire, I, I think entire world, the digital age that is purpose-built, engineered, constructed to serve as, as global money, global neutral money for enemies. There's one thing, never mind the energy market infrastructure and all the things that, you know, the, the rabbit holes there. And that's Bitcoin. And your proof of, of stake token is cute and is, is really, you know, cool. And I hope you win your casino trip. But and it's, and it's probably, about here? if there is any purpose, it's just going to assist governments in making sure that their dollars can immediately clear in a scenario that speed well, is, of, that works speed is of the S. That works. No, no, no. I know it works better on Tron. <laughs> it works. Dude, I had, a, I had dinner with Pierre Rouchard out LA when I was out at the conference. And, you know, we're talking about all sorts of things and I'm, I'm there with, with him and his wife. And, and I said, Pierre, you know, maybe, maybe the only purpose of these things is to help dollars and euros and yen clear fast enough so that when we, when we go through the eye of the black hole and everybody's trying to move <laughs> their currency as fast as humanly possible, it provides an immediately clearing mechanism because you're going to need that at, at that moment in time. And I asked him, I said, I don't know that he was really buying that argument. I'm just trying to, you know, take the other side of, of an argument to try to, you know, come to a truth or, or an understanding of what we think so, something is. And so I asked Pierre, I said, how much, how much would you pay? Like if I was going to send you $1 of tether on Ethereum, I said, how much would the fees be on something like that? And he just burst out laughing. He goes, he goes, it'd be like five dollars. <laughs> I said, yeah. come, I said, come on, man, you can't be serious. For me to send you one dollars worth of value on a stable coin over the Ethereum network, it cost me five dollars. And he goes, he goes, yeah. He says, why do you think everybody's using Tron? And why do you think they're they're using the Binance Smart Chain to to do those activities right now? And I said. Are you serious? Have they truly tried to optimize for everything and therefore like basically solved nothing? Is that what's is that what's happened with Ethereum? And he just burst out laughing. He says, that is exactly what has happened. There are no solutions. There are only trade-offs. And by and trying to do and be everything, everything, they might just end up, and this is not today, you know, they might just end up with nothing in the end here. And, and you know, maybe if you like never dies or, or whatnot, but whether it's death by a million forks, death by a million copy paste of your coin, you know, of your protocol, taking liquidity away, like the Binance smart chain, you know, the Solana, the Solana was just ultimately a bunch of, a bunch of <laughs> Alameda stealing FTX yeah. user deposits they and all, pumping into the ecosystem. They're all, they, all they all are. <laughs> <laughs> they all are. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly not, it's not vindicating because Bitcoin's also down a bunch, like, but people believe the, believe the narrative, whatever it was, whether it was ultrasound money or yeah. you know, that Luna was this, you know, innovation or what that Solana was like a productive asset, right? Like, what are you talking about? They're all, they're all centralized in some sort of way. And I think that the, the magnitude of how much they're centralized, people who don't understand the tech just don't have an appreciation for how centralized they are. If the government really wants to come in and shut down a transaction on Ethereum, I think that at this point they're there. 
and, and as far as Binance or Tron or any of them, like if they really wanted to dig in and, and start making things difficult, I think they could, they could definitely do that from a technical standpoint. So anyway, all right, let's go ahead and let's talk. How about some of the hacker stuff with the FTX? So there's coins that start moving. I think it was a Friday after, the, after everything blew up. There's all these coins that start moving off of the FTX. Like People can see the, the public addresses and they're saying, what the heck? Who's, who's taking these coins? Talk to us about this story. What was going on? What has happened? Where are we at right now? So I'm not fully caught up in the last day or two, but I, I know that they... You know, there was some, it was, I mean, it was definitely an inside job in a way. Uh, people said like the, the web, got, the web app got hacked or whatever, but ultimately it doesn't matter if the front end got hacked or the front end released a software update. You need the private keys on your Ethereum accounts or whatever to move, to move this stuff. So it was an inside job, right? There's no debate about that. They take all, you know, the stake ETH and turn it into ETH. I think it was Tether and turn it into DAI, you know, which is a supposedly decentralized stablecoin, collateralized stablecoin on Ethereum. That 50% of the collateral is circled USDC. But I digress. They, they dump all of their you know, centralized assets for more decentralized assets. And I think the interesting thought experiment here is if you, know, you have all these OFAC compliant blocks, right? 50% of the, the block production. And then if you just look at like, you know, Coinbase's, Binance's, Kraken's, Lido, which Lido's governance token, which you know supposedly is decentralized, is held all by U.S. regulated VCs. And you look at you know from a block production standpoint, what might happen if these people you know maybe they stake the coins? Like I have no idea what happens next with this. Maybe they you know I think they're dumping it off for some wrapped Bitcoin asset or something. But if it's a wrapped asset, right? Or if it's like if there's a pressure choke point, I think this is the key thing here. I don't know what's going to happen with the hacker or whatnot. But if there's a pressure choke point. And it's not defendable by, you know, basically open source code and economic incentives. It's going to, you know, not whether it's break or be tested. Right. And I, I don't think there's been that test yet. I think the mm-hmm. test is coming mm-hmm. clearly. And so, yeah, I, it's, I mean, it's, it's clear the differentiation between Bitcoin and Ethereum now for me, I think for a lot of people, surprisingly, they haven't made that, that distinction yet, but I, I don't really know what happens with the hacker or when they dump it or whatnot, but I know the whole thing is like we've, talk about a massive, massive fraud. And I mean, they should all be in prison for, for what you know, I'm concerned. Dylan, back in 2021, you wrote an article and I'm sharing this right now so people can see. So yep. the article you wrote, the conclusion of the long-term debt cycle and the rise of Bitcoin. This is a fantastic article. I know it's a little bit old, but I want to highlight this for people that are pulling this up. Clearly you're pulling some pictures and graphics and talking about Ray Dalio's long-term debt cycle. And then you start talking about the end game and, and you show this awesome, you know, effective federal funds chart where you're really kind of seeing this 80-year cycle playing out graphically. Talk to us about this article. What were you trying to accomplish by writing this and any key points that maybe have changed or that you'd like to add to some of the things that you put in here since 2021? Yeah. So the basis of the, the article, and, and honestly, my Bitcoin thesis, is that we're at the end or, or we're extremely close to the end of this, of this long-term debt cycle that we've seen play out throughout history. But, but essentially, these, you know, there's the traditional short-term debt cycle, you know, eight to 10 years, whether you understand economics or finance or, or business cycles in general, you kind of people will know that recessions happen for some reason every once in a while. 
Uh, sometimes things are good and bad and these things are, you know, naturally cyclical in nature, but what's not often understood is like the, the long-term debt cycle and that these short-term debt cycles and their own cyclicality lead to these, these longer form cycles of money and credit. And if you just look at the interest rate chart, right, we're 51 years into this global fiat experiment. We've done, you know, these long-term debt cycles before, but it's been on a gold backed standard, right? And every time these, these debt cycles go bust, what they do is they devalue in some way. And that traditionally was, you know, like the U.S. has defaulted on its debt twice, right? They defaulted in 1933. They defaulted in, in 1971 when they broke the, the gold peg. Now, right, interest rates went to 20% in 1980. And, and since then, they went down only, right? And, and COVID 2020, once again, at the zero lower bound and had, you know, how many trillions in stimulus globally? And I think the key thing and the thing that, I mean, Preston, you've been beating the drum on this for, for years on end mathematically, what's the way out here, yeah. right? And, and Greg Foss could talk about this for, for eight hours a day. And he does. Shout out to Greg. What is the way out when real debt to GDP, or I'm sorry, and you know, debt to GDP is 120% federally and 400% you know, globally, and, and never mind all the off-balance sheet stuff. Like, what's the way out here, guys? Because the last time we've been this indebted, or here's a good stat for you. The last time stocks and bonds both fell 20% in the year. Two years, Preston. 1931, 1969. Yeah. Right. I, I just, I love that statistic because, because what happens after these huge bursts and destructions of wealth, especially in a historically over indebted economy, what happens? And what happens is a real devaluation and devaluation in real terms and creditors in this situation, creditors and savers get screwed. Mm-hmm. And so here we are and the feds raising rates to 5% and we're tightening the belt and, you know, bonds had a historic drawdown, the greatest drawdown in the 10-year treasury in recorded history inter year. I'm not sure if we're still there. I think we are. But you know, stocks are 20% from the highs. And clearly, the, you know, the, we, the drain is circling. And so what, what comes in the next 12 to 18 months as the historic bubble in, in you know, tax receipts is no longer there, right? The everything asset bubble, this is the thing. The, cost of, the real cost of capital was negative. You had, and you had nominal negative yielding debts, Never mind real negative yielding debts. Across Europe and Japan, you still, I think there's still some short end debt in Japan that's negative maybe. You had $20 trillion of negative yielding bonds. Insane. Contracts guaranteed to lose money. I give you a hundred bucks, I get 99 back in 30 years. Like insanity. And it was, and it was, and it was because you had, you know, this disinflationary environment at CPI for so long. I repeatedly referred to like, I was posting throughout the year as this bond market bubble was unwinding you know, kind of memeing, posting like big short clips and stuff like inflation, CPI inflation gets to three to five to six to seven to eight. And they're saying it's transitory, it's transitory, it's transitory. Meanwhile, Russia invades Ukraine and these, you know, this, this global, these globalization forces, this unipolar world order. I mean, I'm not a, a geo, like a you know, geopolitical historian by any means, but I listen to the really smart people and they're saying, Hey guys, the structural forces that we had for the last 40 years, they're maybe going the other way. Mm-hmm. And so is any of that disinflationary or deflationary? And I don't think, and I, I didn't think, and I still don't think it is. And so what does that mean for bonds as, as you're buying 30 year debt at 2% yield, wake up guys. Uh, and so we've seen that we've seen that cost of capital dramatically reprice as, as I mean, energy essentially forced it to reprice. And because the cost of capital is repriced, we've seen the valuations reprice. And now I think we see, you know, the real economy in the way reprice. Yep. And the results are going to be quite, quite interesting. 
for, you know, if we just look at past tightening cycles, past disruptions of wealth at this magnitude, we can forecast some pretty, some pretty crazy outcomes. So I'm just going to say the recap there is phenomenal. Straight off the top of his head, you got to check out the article. He does a masterful job laying this out in depth and then talking about Bitcoin and how it kind of fits into this as well, which he didn't cover right there. So Joe was wanting to hear your thoughts on the, on the bond yield curve in the next six months. I'm just kind of curious because I'll be honest with you, man, I don't know what to really kind of expect in the next six months with the, with the yield curve. I can find a ton of articles, especially over in Europe, where things are just dire and not getting better anytime soon. And then, you know, I see some other things that, that kind of seem like maybe the recession's really starting to, to kick in. And, you know, some of the, maybe some of the demand that they're trying to suck out of the market is, is maybe going to play out. And maybe we see some of the inflation start coming down and maybe the, the bonds start getting bid a little bit. So, I just I don't know what to expect from here. I just expect a lot of volatility, and I, and I expect the recession to fully start setting in here very soon in, in the next six months. But how do you see the bond yield curve going? <laughs> yeah, I I don't I think there's times and across asset classes I can say like I have an edge or maybe I understand things a little bit a little bit more, especially that you know put some financial capital behind. I don't feel strongly one way or another in terms of like. I mean, I, I'm not, let, let's be clear here. I'm not a buyer of duration debt for a long-term hold here. Yes. Uh, maybe, for, <laughs> maybe for a trade, but like, I'm not going to, I don't really get that cute sometimes. Like, I mean, I, I mess around across asset classes, volatility, you know, rates, whatever. But like, I mean, I'll, I'm at, at the end of the day, I'm just trying to, to, to buy more Bitcoin. And so for all of the year, or not all of the year, I mean, really since the spring, that's just been stacked in that, that cash pile. And so, I mean, I, I don't really know where, where rates are going to go over the next six to 12 months, but you know, I, I, think, I think Joe thinks they're going to go lower, bonds go higher, and he, he very well be right, be right there. Yeah, I'll tell you, like you, I, I've been stacking cash all year, but I've just deployed all of it into Bitcoin. At all this, of it. At Chad, Chad yeah. move. Yeah. Nice buy. Yeah. Now, who knows where it goes? You know, could it go down to 10,000? I think that's totally in the cards if, if some of these other things start blowing up and who knows where, yeah. you know. Heck, if GBTC has to liquidate, I could only imagine what that could do to the price. But like you said, it might happen in the OTC market. I don't know. But I do know that I've participated in markets long enough to know that once you start getting some decent prices and you think that you're within, call it a six-month window of things of the tide kind of changing, like you yeah. just can't be greedy and think that you're going to nail the absolute bottom. Like That's a fool's errand. And so I've just started... You know, it's. I didn't start. I, I've done it. I've taken the cash from 2022 and, and deployed it into Bitcoin. And we'll see how close I get to whatever bottom I fully expect that we eventually reach. My last question for you, Dylan, is really this. You've been posting some of these charts where on-chain metrics are showing that there's a whole lot of coins that aren't moving. And there's a lot of addresses that are consolidating and, and buying at these prices. Talk to us about some of these metrics and what, what you think that they mean. And I think this is a really important thing that people that aren't intimately familiar with this space do not understand about Bitcoin. Yeah. On-chain, on-chain metrics get trolled a little bit because you know in, in 2021, a lot of these things looked super, super strong. Yeah. And then price obviously drew down and the whole crypto thing imploded like we covered for the first half of the show. And, and here's the thing is that the, the supply and elasticity of Bitcoin, like 
you know, people always just throw out, oh, it's absolutely scarce. And like the people that aren't in the weeds with all this or don't understand Bitcoin or that think it's just a speculative bubble, we go, okay, it's absolutely scarce. But the supply and elasticity of Bitcoin, the price agnostic buyers and accumulators of Bitcoin that don't part for the, for the majority. I mean, you know, people will trim tops and we can see this in on-chain data, you know, where they'll, they'll, you know, let some coins go after a thousand percent increase in price. But for the most part, you have a cohort of people that are always acquiring this thing somewhere on the planet and not selling it. And right now we're seeing levels of whether it's like, you know, 83% of supply all-time low hasn't moved in like three months, right? Or I, th- I think it might be higher than that. You have coins flowing out of exchanges at a massive level. You have, this is just going to snap so hard the other way. But I think right now, you know, price is set at the margin, obviously. And you're going to see Wall Street. I, I, I'm pretty confident in this. You're going to see Wall Street step in, you know, like sharks in the water. And some of them will be buyers, but from an institutional perspective, the asset class, you know, the poster child of crypto just imploded. Asset class is somewhat untouchable, paradoxically, despite it being the cheapest it's been in a, in a while. And so I think they're going to really lay into the short end on CME, mm-hmm. on BitDo, on, on the short inverse ETF. Mm-hmm. Like BitDo is 600 million bucks of, of NAV. CME futures in Bitcoin terms is at an all-time high, like 1.6 billion or something. At the top, that was like 4.5 billion, but in Bitcoin terms, in Bitcoin denominated units, which it's not denominated, it's in dollars, it's at an all-time high. And so you have a few things happening. Max Essendus away from exchanges because everybody doesn't trust anything anymore. You have coins getting accumulated by people that you know, enjoy getting you know, kicked in the teeth and just stacking and don't yes, give a do. and continue. Yes, we do. And, <laughs> and, and at the same time, you have the Wall Street guys shorting you know, anything and everything. GBTC, MicroStrategy, yeah. CNE Futures, uh, you know, 30%, 33% short interest on the BTO ETF. And, and also, like when you're the, the crypto casinos, the derivatives exchanges, mostly Binance at this point, as we go lower and lower, more of this open interest, a greater and greater percentage. Like it's at the top, it was like 70% was crypto collateralized. Now it's like 30%, and the rest is stablecoin margin. And, and now we see all the things like the quarterly futures, the perpetual futures. They were paying 40, 50% to long at the top, they were paying 10%, 15% futures basis, you know, perpetual futures funding rate, if you annualize it out. They were paying to long Bitcoin this entire way. And just now, they're not, pay, they're not getting too overly aggressive. But just now, open interest is going up, 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 up. And they're starting to get a little ballsy on the short side. And I think we can, we can just, you know, whether we consolidate here or where we go next, I don't know. But I imagine we just chop around for a bit. And yeah. as coins continue to get pulled off exchanges and people, you know, the miners have some coins left, but not all that many. You have all these levered desks that have puked up. You have people that are just scared that have, that have just been selling. And if, if this is if 16K or maybe lower, maybe higher, if this is where we find that equilibrium, like the 3K of 2018, 2019, or the $200, the bear market before, whatever that level is, I don't know. But there's a level where the marginal buyer is stronger than the marginal seller in this asset class. And the lower it goes, the, the, the easier it is, right? I, I know for a fact via data and anecdotal evidence that there are passive buyers of this thing every single day that hold it in, in their own custody. And so at some point, the marginal seller gets exhausted and you have a historic level of short interest that gets utterly destroyed. And I don't think we're there yet, but what this thing will do on the other side of this as price reinforces the narrative in the face of potentially global economic Armageddon is pretty wild to think about in yeah. terms of what happens next. 
I mean, I just, I, you should, some of the slides I, I dropped for you, you should just, you know, cycle through maybe in the, in the YouTube or edit on later. Like people should, should look at some of this stuff because it's just, it's, it's going to rip so hard. Um, and I, 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 think I mean, so it too. might not happen in the next 12 or 18 months, but whatever the timeline, I don't know, but I'm, I'm certain that people don't understand the supply demand dynamics here and what's going to happen once the price starts to reinforce the story like it always does. Well, you haven't had any momentum shift. You know, the traditional no. metrics that a, a lot of Wall Streeters, a lot of whales use when they're looking at just kind of the momentum shift, whatever cash they have on the sidelines, like none of that's been demonstrated yet, at least not on any type of long duration where, you know, a lot of whales would be what they would be using to step back into the market. You haven't seen that yet. But I can only imagine when you do have that momentum shift. And you've had the supply suffocation that clearly has taken place. You can, you can literally see it on, you know, you can pull that data straight off your node. It's going to be a whopper. It's going to yep. be a whopper. And I am totally here for it. And God, I love this space. Everything that's happening, at least from my vantage point, it just shows me that we are dealing with an asset that's truly free and open that can actually bring the cost of capital in a free and open way to the world because the bad actors are exploding. What an exciting time to be alive. That's all I can say, Dylan. And what a pleasure it is to bring a person like you on the show. All right. So Dylan, thank you so much for making time coming on the Investors Podcast. We love having you. If people want to learn more about you or they want to follow your feed or whatever, give them a handoff to where they can learn more about you. Cool. Yeah. Well, I spend way too much time on Twitter learning and posting. So you can find me there at Dylan LeClaire underscore. I'm working with Bitcoin Magazine, kind of posting a lot of these thoughts with a newsletter with, that we put on with, with Sam Rule and, and Jeff Frost has joined the team. And and we're putting out kind of all of this stuff from, you know, we talk as a Bitcoin focused newsletter, we talk about bonds and volatility and Bitcoin and the collapse of all these bucket shops and everything in between. So check that out. There's free tier, paid tier. Otherwise, I mean, you know, my DMs are open. I'm sorry if I don't get to them. And I don't really like email or LinkedIn for, all, for, for that matter. But, you know, I, I, I love this community. It's great to, to get to meet and talk to some of the smartest people in the world about all these different things. So, you know, find me on Twitter. I appreciate you having me on, Preston. I mean, you've been, you've been a mentor to me in many ways. So it's awesome to catch up on a, on a chat and, and have it blast out to the world. Honored to have you, Dylan. And you always bring just unbound amounts of knowledge and thoughts and critical thinking. And I love it. And it's an honor to call you a friend. So thanks for coming on. Likewise. Cheers. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.